Father, we ask for your help this morning. We pray you'd focus the attention of our minds and hearts on the truth of your word. We pray that your son, Jesus, would be exalted in this time. Lord, we pray that the gospel message would be clear. Lord, I pray you'd help me to faithfully and joyfully preach your word. Lord, help me to say those things which are true and right and helpful to this congregation. Lord, so we ask collectively for the help of your spirit to guide us and to shape us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What's your favorite book of the Bible? I've also heard it asked like this. If you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one book of the Bible with you, which would it be? That'd be pretty terrible to be stranded in the first place, but then to have to leave behind the other 65 books, that's a challenge. But you get the point of the question. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Maybe you enjoy turning to the Psalms regularly, that they lead your heart to rejoice, or maybe even in moments of, of sadness to properly lament and be reminded of hope that's found in God and what He's done in Jesus. Maybe for some of you recently, the book of Proverbs and turning to God, asking Him for wisdom, and even praying through a, a proverb a day that corresponds with every uh, day of the month we're in. Maybe that's something that you really enjoy doing. Maybe it's one of the four Gospels that you really enjoy spending time in. Maybe it's the, the Gospel of, of Matthew that leads your soul to rejoice. It's hard to pick one book, but if you could pick one book, I, I wonder what it would be. Well, for the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, Galatians, I haven't confirmed indeed it was his favorite, at least it was one of his favorites, and you can tell by this quote, it was at the top of the list. He was quoted as having said this about the book of Galatians, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle to which I have wedded myself. He loved the book of Galatians. He read the book of Galatians and God opened up his eyes to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He, he loved this book as it rehearses the gospel of Jesus in a very glorious way, unpacking teaching about doctrine central to the Christian life. As you read through the book of Galatians, you see how important the gospel is to the everyday life of the Christian. And someday, sometimes Christians may wrongly think that the gospel is like the elementary part of the Christian life that you graduate from, like the beginning of the Christian life. But I've heard it put like this, the gospel is not the door that you enter the house through and then forget about the door. The gospel is the house. It's not just how you enter the Christian life, it's how you live the Christian life, how you enjoy the Christian life. The gospel is for everyday life. Now, back in the spring, we went through one of the Apostle Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians, written to the church in Thessalonica. And now we turn our attention as a church together to the book of Galatians, a letter that he wrote that, that it spells out the gospel of God's grace in Christ in a very glorious way. So we plan to spend uh, the next few months, but I'm preaching, in the book of Galatians. So if you're new to our church, most of what we do is just open up a book of the Bible and go from start to finish. Uh, God gave us His Word in books, and so we think it's helpful to go through those books of the Bible. Now, there's 149 verses in the book of Galatians. Uh, on an average reading pace, it would take you about 20 minutes to read through the book of Galatians. That'd be a wonderful exercise for you to do this week, even to do that with others here in this church or others in your family, to read from start to finish through the book of Galatians. But the way we'll approach it is just to take a few verses at a time. And we're going to begin with chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Go ahead and turn there with me if you haven't already done so. And the best way to stay engaged in this sermon is just to open up a copy of God's Word. If you want to take that pew Bible right in front of you and use that, you can take that and turn to page 972. Page 972 will be in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 this morning. We say this every Sunday. If you come this morning and you don't own a Bible, use that Bible this morning and take it home with you. We'd love for you to read the Bible more. You can even ask one of our pastors at the door afterwards or any member around you to connect you to somebody here who could read the Bible with you. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Let me read through all of this passage as we begin our time this morning. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, there's a main idea that I want you to know that I think captures this passage. If you're taking notes, you can write down this main idea. The gospel originates with God and it must not be changed. The gospel originates with God, and it must not be changed. Well, you probably see the heading there in your Bible, the the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Uh, This is another letter we're making our way through. And the way that we typically write letters today, we begin with a greeting, you know, dear so-and-so, followed by the main body, and then we kind of close with something like sincerely, and then we sign our name. But that's not how letters in the Roman era there in the first century, that's not the form of letters written there. We see in Galatians here just the typical form of an ancient letter. They begin with a sender. So there in verse 1, we see this is written by the Apostle Paul. Later in in verse 2, we also see all the brothers who are with me, uh, who are those fellow workers in the gospel who accompanied him on his missionary journey. And then down in verse 2, the recipient of that letter to the churches of Galatia. And Galatia was a Roman province in the the central area of Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, Uh, not far from the city of Ankara, uh, where we support a church there, Chunkaya Baptist Church. We we sent a team there back in the fall to do some short-term missions trip there. In fact, we got some more to share tonight that we were able to provide them additional support to help them purchase a building there, actually a floor of a building, to meet in there in the city of Ankara. So in that very region uh, where the gospel is going forth today, we see the Apostle Paul went there in his first missionary journey and planted churches in the region of Galatia. Now you notice that this letter is written to churches in the plural. And this is Paul's only letter that he wrote to Christians spread out over a region. Other letters he wrote to a particular local church or to individuals like Timothy or Titus. Here he's writing to a bunch of Christians spread out over a region, a group of churches. And notice he he doesn't call them one church. They are one church, one body in one sense, but he refers to them as churches. They're, They're different congregations, different assemblies spread out through a region, each comprised of baptized Christians assembling on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning like we've assembled here this morning, to worship the Lord together like we've done, to encourage one another under the leadership of elders, hearing the Word preached, receiving baptism, the Lord's Supper. These are local churches, just like this one that he was writing to. Then down in verse 3, a greeting, his typical greeting, grace and peace. And what I love about the introductions to these letters is that you learn something about God and the gospel in these introductions. Now, we'll get to more of that in just a bit, but but grace and peace is more than just a a formal greeting. He'll unpack central, important Christian theology in this introduction. Now, these churches in Galatians, they were churches that that Paul planted during his first missionary journey. And if you want to go back later and read through Acts chapter 13 and 14, you can read there about Paul's missionary journey in this region. And the situation in this letter that we'll see develop is that false teachers showed up in these churches not too long after Paul's departure. And this prompts him to write a letter to try to rescue them, to try to turn them back 
to the gospel of God's grace in Christ that he preached to them because there is no other gospel. Well, this morning as we make our way through these first 10 verses, I want to split this up into two parts. And I want us to notice two characteristics of gospel ministry that the Apostle Paul points out. Two characteristics of gospel ministry. First in verses 1 through 5, a chosen messenger. It's a characteristic that he's pointing out about his ministry that we still recognize today. Verses 1 through 5, a chosen messenger. And then in verses 6 through 10, an unchanging message. Chosen messenger, an unchanging message. Let's look at this first characteristic in verses 1 through 5, a chosen messenger. Now, what's interesting in this letter is that after Paul identifies himself as the author of this letter and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he immediately emphasizes that his office and his authority as an apostle does not come from man. Now, his apostleship, it's a major theme throughout the letter of Galatians, and he gets right to it in verse 1, affirming there that he's an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, the point of emphasis there, why he gets so quickly to it, it gives us some indication that Paul is up against challenges to his apostolic authority, to the legitimacy of him as a messenger. And as this letter unfolds, we see that his authority is under attack by a group of, of people known as the Judaizers. They're, they're false teachers. We'll get to more of that in just a bit. The first mention we see there is in verse 7, that there's this group who's troubling the churches and teaching a, go- a gospel contrary to what they receive from Paul. Now, that word apostle, it means sent. It means to be, to be sent on a mission. If you're an apostle, someone who's sent out on a mission on someone else's behalf, a, a representative of someone else. And in the New Testament, this office specifically refers to Jesus' 12 disciples and Paul. So Paul's calling as an apostle, it came when he was on the road to Damascus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. He was going on his way to persecute Christians, to try to stamp out the movement of Christianity. And you can read in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, about this call of God through the risen Lord Jesus Christ appearing to him there on the road to Damascus. In verse 15, his mission and his calling given there in Acts 9, 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's what the Lord was describing, his calling on the Apostle Paul to go and take the gospel to the nations. Now, there's a couple qualifications given for an apostle. Number one, apostles were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There certainly were hundreds of more people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, but in order to be an apostle, you had to be one of those eyewitnesses. Second, apostles were handpicked by Jesus. So you read about the original 12, handpicked by Jesus, called by the Holy Spirit. You can read in Acts 1, who replaced Judas Iscariot, Matthias, they're led by the Holy Spirit of, of God. So only the apostles could claim this. Other important men in the New Testament, like Timothy and Titus, uh, they weren't handpicked by Jesus. They were called by the Holy Spirit, but they were appointed by Paul, by a man. So Paul's setting himself apart to say he wasn't called by a man. Nothing wrong with that. Obviously, Timothy and Titus, an important calling by apostles. But he's saying, I was handpicked by Jesus himself as a messenger, one sent to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, apostles were able to perform signs and wonders. In that apostolic age, those signs and wonders pointing to the authority given to them by Jesus to proclaim the message of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 speaks to that, just the apostles having that ability to perform signs and wonders. And with that authority given from God and the Holy Spirit, handpicked by Jesus, these men wrote Scripture, like the book of Galatians preserved for us today. Now today, no person alive has the authority of Paul or Peter or the other apostles. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the apostles, they played this role of laying the foundation of the church. 
So the foundation has already been set through the prophets and the apostles, Ephesians 2.20. Today, the local church builds on that foundation that's already been given as we spread the gospel and build up and plant churches. Now, I mentioned earlier what I love about these introductions in Paul's letters is that you learn something about God, you learn something about the gospel in these introductions. So let's not skip over what we see here. Consider what this introduction teaches us about God. Again, Paul is emphasizing his authority does not come from people, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. That phrase is packed in telling us about who God is. And that, that, that little phrase, Paul shows how Jesus is different from any ordinary man. And at the same time in that phrase, in verse 1, he declares the unity between Jesus Christ and God the Father. He references one calling as an apostle coming from Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father. In other words, a call from Jesus being a call from God himself. For the Father and the Son are one God, united eternally. Now, later on in verse 3, he also presents God, the Father, and Jesus Christ in this unity. We, we learn something about God here. But when the Apostle Paul says his apostleship is not through man, but through Jesus Christ, think about the categories he's got there. Man, Jesus Christ. You might think, wait a minute, Jesus was a man, which is true. He was a man, fully man, truly man. But the Apostle Paul puts him in the category that's different from any other human being who's ever lived or will live. He was the God-man, truly God, Truly man, the eternal son of God who came down to earth in the form of a tiny little baby born in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, God revealing himself in Jesus. Jesus is not merely a man. He is the God man. God made man. And so he can't be described, and Paul doesn't describe him here. In fact, he goes out of his way to make sure you can't mistake it. Jesus was not merely a man, for he is the Son of God. Now, why defend his apostleship? Why did he need to get to that really quickly there in the beginning? I think he's defending his credibility to point to the reliability of the message he proclaimed, the gospel. He was not called as an apostle by men, and his message, the gospel, was not a man-made message. It's a message that originates with God. Well, consider what we learn about the gospel in this introduction. For starters, the gospel is a message of grace and peace. In verse 3, Paul gives his typical greeting, grace and peace. Grace, a Greek way of saying hello. Peace, shalom, a Hebrew way of saying, a Jewish way of saying hello. But he's not just saying hello here. He puts them together, grace and peace, as a distinctly Christian greeting in the gospel because grace and peace summarize the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message he proclaimed, the message he wanted to remind them of was a message of grace and peace from God in Jesus Christ. God's grace, I've heard it defined as this, his free mercy lavished on all who believe in Jesus. God's unmerited favor through the work of Christ. And the order of grace and peace is significant here. After grace is given, peace follows. Peace, I've heard it defined as God's positive blessings of, of well-being, wholeness and freedom that the grace of God in Christ brings. It's only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ that you can have peace with the God who created you, peace with the God that you've sinned against, peace with a God who's a holy judge who is right to judge us for our sin against him. The, the only way to know peace with him vertically is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said in his commentary in Galatians, these two words, grace and peace, include all that belong to Christianity. Grace releases sin, and peace makes the conscience quiet. 
The grace and peace from God, it's come through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, His Son. In verse 4, we learn something else about the gospel. The gospel is a message about a price paid by Jesus, a price that's paid by Jesus Christ alone. In verse 4, we see there that Jesus gave Himself for our sins. When my kids were little, uh, we just heard this definition. It was just popular in our church at that time, a very simple way to teach a two- or three-year-old. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins. Five words. Christ died for our sins. You see that right here? He gave himself for our sins. He willingly laid down his life and died on the cross as a payment for our sins. This tells us why Jesus came. He didn't come merely to be a good example or an inspiration to us. He came to pay the price for our sins. It also helps us understand that his death was a substitutionary death. Jesus standing in our place, the perfect, innocent, holy one, standing in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. He died in our place for our sins. Now, it's offensive to some to talk about a bloody cross. Why? Well, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for sins, it does not make much of you and me. It highlights that we're sinners, condemned before a holy God. There's nothing we can possibly do in our own good efforts, in our own best intentions, to repay God the debt we owe him because of our sin against him. It doesn't make much of us. In fact, it tells us our sin is so terrible. It's such a big deal that a price needed to be paid, and the only one who could pay it, the only one who could step in as our substitute, is Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who is truly God and truly man. It doesn't make a big deal about us. It says we're sinners. It makes a big deal about God and His grace and His love. It shows us that that God poured out His wrath and judgment for sin on His Son, Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. It tells us something about the love of God and Jesus Christ dying in our place to pay for our sins. Brothers and sisters, that price that was paid, it accomplished something. It paid the price of redemption. If you're here this morning and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're a Christian, you can look back to the cross and know in that moment, almost 2,000 years ago, the price was paid for your sin. Christ's death on the cross finished the work that God had to do for him. God proved that by raising him from the dead on the third day, and nothing needs to be added to that finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you're a Christian this morning, you're just called to rejoice in God. What a God to serve. We've been forgiven. We've been set free, and we deserve none of it. We've deserved none of His love, none of His kindness, none of His grace. Even in our best efforts, we have sinful motivations often that corrupt what we would consider to be a good work or a good effort. You see, the, the cross of Jesus Christ calls all of those who've repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ to enjoy God, who He is, and what He's done for you in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, well, then you're not a Christian yet. It means you're not united to God. It means you're not living in a relationship with God. You can be. That can change today. It can change this morning. It can change in a a moment. Because this is about a rescue, not an act of rehabilitation. So this morning you can say, God, please deliver me from my sin. Forgive me for my sin against you. I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Please forgive me. If that's something that you want to ask God to do this morning or that you already have recently, come and talk to one of our pastors at the doors afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about the gospel, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be baptized upon that profession of faith. You see, we, we see at the end of verse 4, the gospel is about a rescue, not a rehabilitation, but a, a rescue. The end of verse 4, to deliver us from the present evil age. In other words, we can't deliver ourselves. Only Christ can do that. And finally, in verse 5, we see that the gospel is about God and His glory. 
The response to all of this, to God's grace in Jesus Christ, the the peace that, that God brings, the response to all of this from Paul is to glorify God. We see a doxology there at the end. A doxology, simply put, is an expression of praise to God. It's lifting up who God is. Verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To glorify God is to exalt God, to exalt Him with all of your life, to honor Him and praise Him for who He is and for what He has done. You see, God's grace exalts Him and, and His character. And the response to the gospel, the fitting and right response, is to worship God. To exalt Him. That's what Paul does here in verse 5. Salvation is all by God's grace. And therefore, God alone gets the glory. We didn't praise ourselves this morning. We didn't sing, amazing me, how can it be? Right? We didn't sing that. We sang, amazing love, how can it be? It's not our efforts. It's not what we've done to try to please God. It's all by His grace and His love. Because if you're focused on yourself, maybe one day you think you're amazing, and the next day you're looking at yourself in self-pity. That's just how it works for many of us. We feel really good about ourselves one day, and then we get down on ourselves. And the problem is, is that as Christians, we don't need to focus on ourselves. If we want to find assurance, focus on Christ, what God has done in Christ. Be lifted up from your present situation and your present world, and be focused on God's love to you in Jesus Christ. The response of that is worship. It's to praise God. The gospel, God's glory, His grace in Christ, it leads His people to worship. A second characteristic that I want us to see in verses 6 through 10 is an unchanging message. An unchanging message. Now imagine if like you led a prayer over lunch this afternoon, and you closed and you said, in Jesus' name, amen, And then you just jumped right in. I mean, the second you said amen, jumped right into this intense conversation. Well, that's kind of what happens here, right? He says amen, verse 5, and then verse 6, I am astonished. It's kind of like, open your eyes, amen, I'm astonished. I mean, it comes out really quickly. And if you read this letter, you're like, wow, what is happening here in verse 6? Because what typically happens in Paul's New Testament letters, after he opens up with this greeting, kind of tells who the sender is and the recipients are, he typically goes into an expression of thanksgiving. He gives thanks to God for what he sees in their lives, but he doesn't do that here. He skips over any statement of thanksgiving because he's shocked at a report he's received of what is going on there. He's astonished. Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. So rather than communicating that he's thankful, he communicates that he's astonished, shocked, alarmed, saddened, deeply concerned over what he's heard there about these churches deserting the gospel. And specifically, he's astonished at how quickly some of the Galatians have turned away from the gospel. It had only been a short time since he'd been there. Some scholars estimate about a year. In about a year's time, there's a significant group that is being led astray by false teachers, deserting the gospel. And Paul seems genuinely surprised by this. There's even an allusion there in the language back to Exodus chapter 32. And when Israel was there in the wilderness and Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, where he received a word from God, the Ten Commandments in Israel, they grew impatient there at the bottom of the mountain. And they decided rather than waiting on Moses to come back as the mediator with the one true God, they created a golden calf very quickly while he was up there to worship. So he's kind of reflecting back on that in allusion, saying, you've so quickly deserted the gospel you received. But notice that turning away from the gospel isn't merely deserting a set of beliefs. Turning away from the truth of the gospel is not merely deserting the Christian faith. So this isn't like, oh, when I was young, I had this political view, and I've gotten older, and I've got this political view. It's not like, oh, when I was young, I had this style. Like, I run into some people, like my, my, my high school reunion, someone who dressed goth in high school, which I don't think that even exists anymore. 
And now they, they dress really preppy. Oh, you just had a taste, a different taste of style. All right, you grow up and you kind of switch. That's not what's happening here. This isn't just some sort of subtle shift or transition. They, they weren't just switching from one camp to another or one style to another. What's happening here is that they were deserting the gospel, and therefore they were deserting a person, not just a set of beliefs. Look at verse 6. They were deserting Him who called you. They were deserting God. Don't, don't think about leaving the gospel as just, well, I've changed my beliefs. I believe something different now. Deserting is, is switching sides in a way that, that is, is, yeah, it's like a, being a traitor. In fact, this, this term could be used back then for leaving one army to go join the other, a deserter, right? Kind of in contemporary terms, maybe in North Carolina terms, taking off a, a Tar Heel jersey and putting on a Duke jersey. Right? It just doesn't make any sense. I had a friend when I graduated. He was a big Chapel Hill fan and uh, had Chapel Hill everything, all kinds of clothes. And uh, he didn't get into Chapel Hill, which there's no shame in that. A lot of people don't. It's a hard school to get into. But he got into NC State, and then he went to NC State. And we were all laughing, like, what are you going to do with all your Tar Heel gear now? And he lasted one semester. He just couldn't take it. <laughs> he couldn't take being on NC State's campus. He left once and transferred to a school in Alabama where he wouldn't have to deal with that type of rivalry. Right? This, this deserting here, it's not just a subtle shift. It's turning away from God and turning away to another gospel, which there is no other gospel. You see, when you desert the gospel, you're deserting the God of the universe. Turning away from the God who is gracious and merciful. This was not a, a small shift in doctrine. They were being tempted to leave God, to desert Him. Now, Paul's writing to the Galatians while they're in the act of turning away. So they're in the act of deserting. Later on in verse 11, he calls them brothers. So this isn't full-blown apostasy for them yet. Uh, he's trying to rescue them in this letter to call them back to the truth in, in Christ. And let's be clear, that this talk of deserting is certainly not suggesting that you can lose your salvation. The Apostle Paul is just ever so clear on that in his letters. In one place, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Think of the moment you first believe you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, therefore you will persevere until the end because God's Spirit causes you to do that. But certainly we understand, looking at Jesus and the original 12, Judas, Iscariot, Paul, his own followers, there are some who claim to profess faith in Jesus, but over time it shows they don't truly possess true faith in Jesus. Now, there are some who at one time they profess faith, yet sadly end up deserting the faith. Maybe, maybe sadly, you know someone like that. I've been in ministry 23 years now, full-time Christian ministry. Sadly, I've seen this happen. I've seen it with, happen with people who worked in full-time ministry. Someone in my last church who was on staff with a ministry. Well, all of a sudden, one day, I'm walking to an elders meeting, like one afternoon, I get an email to all the elders, and this guy who's on staff at that time with a Christian ministry, who I just saw in church that morning, is renouncing his faith in Christ to all the elders. I had to do a double tell. Is this a joke? Like, what in the world? And I couldn't say anything because I was walking with some people there who, who weren't elders. I couldn't say anything, but I was trying to keep my composure. Like, this is crazy. What is this? And we went to our elders' meeting, and that night at our members' meeting, that guy got up and renounced his faith in Jesus Christ. He had a wife and kids. Wife was still a member of our church. It's sad and terrible situation. I remember afterwards, a member coming up to me, and she was understandably distraught like we all are. That's the hard thing about being a pastor. You're dealing with something yourself, and you got to pastor someone else through it. So I'm trying to keep it together myself. And uh, she's like, I just wonder, who's next? Who's the next one to renounce their faith? And I said, you know what? There may be someone else here. We had a thousand members in our church. I said, but probably no one. Maybe someone else. But the story of the gospel 
The story of the church is not about scores of people renouncing their faith and leaving. The story of the gospel is what we just saw with Brian Purvis and Helen Parker, Edie Caldwell, saints who persevere to the end. That is normal Christianity, sincere Christianity, the end of the story for every true Christian. So we can find comfort in the gospel. We should not be surprised. We look at the story of Jesus. If Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, lost one, right? There's one there who left him in his ministry. We shouldn't be surprised that there might be some who leave ours. But let us not be distraught or shaken. Our confidence is not in Christians. It's in Jesus. My confidence is not in the church. It's one of the one who died to save the church in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we look at this, let's be properly warned about false gospels, but don't be shaken in your faith, wondering, what will I someday desert? Guard yourselves, and you're a member of this church, we're going to guard you. You know, most of what I've seen in people who once claimed to be Christians who go and desert the faith, they may say, I don't believe this anymore, but oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes when I've seen it, it's saying, well, I no longer believe this because I want to go live like this. I want to go live in sin. I want to leave my spouse wrongly. I I want to go live in sexual sin. That's often what I've seen, and the Christian faith doesn't accommodate that. So they'll say, I I no longer believe this, so I can go live in this way. And that person would be shown to not ever have truly been a Christian if they would decide to live in unrepentant sin, not turning back, not confessing sin. You see, this is not merely a set of ideas that is deserted. It's Christ Himself. It's a person. Now, there are two problems that Paul references here. Some of the Galatians are deserting. That's the first problem. There's some deserting. But the second problem, there are some distorting. There are teachers who are distorting the gospel. This is referring to false teachers. Look at the end of verse 7. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. To distort means to twist into something different. Now, as we make our way through this letter, we'll read more about these false teachers. I mentioned earlier, simply put, they're a group of false teachers, the Judaizers, troubling this, these young Christians and leading them astray by preaching another gospel, which Paul makes clear that there is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one way to God. There's only one way to Jesus. That's through faith in him, but they're being led astray by a message of self-achievement. Something like Jesus plus the Old Testament law, Jesus plus circumcision in order to be considered full members of the church and truly saved. That's what these false teachers were teaching to this group of, of largely Gentile believers there in Galatians, to be physically circumcised and to submit to the Old Testament law in order to be saved. Jesus plus something. That's what false teaching does. It distorts the gospel. It sounds Christian. False teaching talks about Jesus. It may even use words like grace. It may use words like scripture. It may use things that sound really familiar. But the message is twisted and it's changed and therefore it's not actually the gospel. You've heard me share this before, but the math of false teaching is adding to the gospel or subtracting from the gospel. The very nature that Paul says here of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you cannot change the message or edit the message without losing all of it. So it's not like the Bible is a rough draft that you can just go back and edit and say, hey, we're going to make a few edits here and try to improve it and catch it up to modern day. If you try to edit the Bible, you lose it. Like documents gone. There is no editing that needs to be done. And if you go to edit the Bible, in fact, you're forsaking God and His Word. This is adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what was happening here in the Galatians. And adding to the gospel does not cause you to advance forward. It actually draws you backwards to losing the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, every member of this church, our confession is that nothing needs to be added to the gospel. Not only can you not do that, but nothing needs to be added The gospel, Christ, is sufficient. His finished work 
on the cross, dying and paying for sin, his resurrection from the dead is sufficient. To try to add to the gospel is to turn away from God and to desert him. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came down to earth, truly man and and truly God. He lived the perfect life. Jesus perfectly obeyed God and, and all that he did. Nothing needed to be added to his obedience because he perfectly obeyed God. He was tempted by Satan himself and yet perfectly obeyed and honored God. You can't add to perfection. He was tempted. He remained holy. He never had a sinful thought. He never had a prideful moment. He was never unloving or unkind to his neighbor. He never had to ask people to forgive him because he never sinned against God or them. Jesus Christ never sinned, perfectly kept the law of God. You and I can't even keep 10 commandments. Jesus perfectly kept God's law, and then he willingly laid his life down, the only one qualified to be a substitute for our sin before a holy God. He laid his life down on the cross. He died, and some of his last words on the cross, it is finished, meaning it is perfect. His death sufficient to pay for the sins of anyone who would trust in Jesus Christ. And on the third day, God showed that Jesus' sacrifice for sin on the cross was accepting to him, that his holy wrath is appeased because on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Jesus doing what no other person has ever done, dead, physically buried in the grave, got up from the dead, resurrection from the dead to never die again, conquering death, showing that nothing else needed to be added. Nothing else needed to be done. The greatest work already accomplished. And therefore, as Christians, we're not trying to work our way to God. In fact, if you think that you're working your way to God, you're actually heading away from Him. The greatest work that needs to be done has already been accomplished. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And therefore, Christians are those who've rested in Christ, put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, nothing more is needed to be forgiven of our sin against God. His death is sufficient to attempt to add or to subtract from the good news. Simply put, is to lose it, to turn away from God. What more could you possibly add to this? You see, Satan, though, the ultimate false teacher, he's always been at work seeking to distort God's Word. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, saying to Adam and Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? And that voice is alive today in false teachers, the voice of Satan. Did God's Word really say? Do we really rely on God's Word? False teachers will tell you that the Bible is just man's thoughts about God. Well, that's an entirely different religion. Because Christianity is a religion of revelation. God revealing himself to us through Jesus Christ, his son, through his, his, his word. The, the Bible is not man's thoughts about God. The Bible is God's word given through certain men like the Apostle Paul. Again, eyewitnesses to the resurrection there in the New Testament. God's word preserved, revealed to us that we might know him and know the gospel and walk in a relationship with God. That voice of false teaching is still alive today, so you need to know how to respond to it. And Paul gives direction for that, starting in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed, meaning condemned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The gospel of Jesus Christ has an unchanging nature to it. Reject Anyone who messes with the message. Paul even includes himself here. He says even if he himself preached a different gospel. And then he says even if an angel from heaven, which maybe you think that's strange, but maybe you're familiar with Mormonism. Joseph Smith, using the name Jesus, saying that the angel Morani appeared to him. Well, God's Word was already sealed at that time. Galatians were there to tell Joseph Smith what to do with that. Reject it. 
Maybe he was making that up. Maybe he thought he really saw an angel. Satan disguises himself as an angel of, of light. Satan himself was an angel. In eternity past, Lucifer, who rebelled against God. So Paul's saying, even if an angel comes to you and tells you a different gospel that you've heard from us and received from us through the Lord Jesus Christ, reject that messenger. Pay attention to the message, in other words. It doesn't matter who the messenger is so much as it does the message. And if they change the message, let that messenger be accursed. That's how damaging false teaching is. There's a lot of things that hurt the church. Uh, persecution comes from outside of the walls of the church to try to damage and destroy the church. Uh, for some reason, people in my generation think, oh, persecution is what we need to strengthen the church. Well, go to Russia and talk to Christians there, because I have. And persecution is a terrible thing. Killing Christians and putting them in jail, it, it, it seeks to destroy churches, and it damages churches. It's an awful thing. It's an attack of Satan from outside the walls of the church. But false teaching is an attack of Satan inside the walls of the church. It's so damaging that Paul gives very harsh language here, saying, let him be accursed. The, the Greek anathema, let him be accursed. The idea here is to be condemned. Paul is calling on God to eternally condemn the false teachers who are leading the Galatians astray. This is condemnation in eternity to hell. That's how serious of a matter this is. God will judge the false teachers forever in eternity. Now, this judgment has certainly involved an exclusion from the fellowship of local churches, right? Certainly, if they're cursed, they're not to remain in the fellowship of the local church. But notice this direction to judge and evaluate the teaching and doctrine. It's not given to another apostle. It's not given to the elders. It's given to those churches, the congregation as a, as a whole. That's important to understand what congregationalism is, that together as a church, Elders included the entire congregation. We are charged with guarding the doctrine of this church. That's who Paul is writing to in Galatians 1, who was to evaluate and sit in judgment there. Now, what does this adding to the gospel look like today? Keep in mind these false teachers amongst the Galatians, they weren't taking Jesus away. They, they seem to be adding something to Jesus, preaching a, a different gospel if anyone preaches a different gospel to you, even the Bishop of Rome, you're to turn away from that. The Bishop of Rome preaches something different, like faith plus works equals salvation. The Bishop of Rome has said, if you believe justification by faith alone, let them be anathema. You're to reject that. That is not the same gospel. So, so we don't understand. Again, that's not bashing Roman Catholics. That's not saying that everyone who calls himself a Roman Catholic is certainly not a believer. That's not what I'm saying. I would say whatever sincere believers exist in Roman Catholicism, is this there despite the teaching of that church, not because of it? Because I'd understand they preach a different gospel that's not going to lead you to what Paul is talking about here in Galatians. Liberal Protestantism, which includes some churches calling themselves Baptist churches, would be involved liberal Protestants. They, they subtract, they take away from Jesus. They say he wasn't truly God or truly man. They say he didn't really resurrect from the grave. And every church building in town that has a rainbow flag flying in front of it that suggests that that symbol is welcoming, which, by the way, we welcome everyone here, anyone, everyone, welcome here at this church. But that rainbow flag does not, does not put forth a message of welcome. What that flag tells me is that you've subtracted from the gospel. You're preaching something different. You don't have to repent of sin. In fact, you don't even have to agree with God about sin and His Word. Just come and believe whatever it is you want to believe. That's not the same gospel. It's subtracting from the gospel. Some churches have a legalism that's adding to the work of, of Jesus. Believe plus be baptized. Believe plus speak in tongues. A believe plus excel in the spiritual disciplines and have a certain intensity of faith. But the true gospel says that Christ saves us. His work is sufficient. Some false gospels say that if Jesus plus your faith will bring you financial prosperity and health and, and, and wealth, uh, wrongly pointing you to riches here on, on earth, and it's a different gospel. Paul says, judge, evaluate. And his ambition here was for Christ to be exalted. His desire was to rescue them from turning away from a false gospel because there is 
no other gospel. He closes this section with a transitional verse in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It seems that part of the false teachers undermining Paul's authority, they were suggesting Paul didn't want to proclaim to the Gentiles that they should be physically circumcised, that somehow he was afraid of losing favor with them. But this pronouncement that Paul gives here in Galatians, I think it gives evidence when he's talking about judging false teachers in their midst, it gives evidence that Paul cared most about God's opinion, about Christ being exalted, the gospel being proclaimed and believed. That was his utmost concern, not the approval of man and the fickle, changing judgment of people, but rather the judgment of an unchanging God. He's saying, I can't serve Christ and try to please people. You can either enslave yourself to the opinions of others or serve as a slave of Christ. You see, God's pleased in Jesus. God is pleased with the gospel. And if you want to please Him, cling to the gospel. Enjoy who God is and what He's done in Christ. Look to Christ. Know the real thing. Know who Christ is. Know the gospel. Rehearse the gospel. As members of one church, we've joined in this community perseverance project, encouraging one another, watching over one another. Should we ever fall into sin, unrepentant sin, or should we ever be led astray by some podcast or some book that's going to teach us something different than what you hear in this church? That we live in light of our statement of faith, the statement of faith that lays out the doctrine we believe, those essentials of Christian doctrine, that we would persevere in that doctrine, that we would hold fast to our confession together. And brothers and sisters, may this remind us, as we point our attention to studying the book of Galatians, may we be reminded that the gospel is about rejoicing. And just like Paul ended verse 5 there, rehearsing the gospel and praising God, that's how we're going to end our service, rejoicing in the victory of Jesus, that it was finished upon that cross. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, we thank you for a chance to look at your word this morning. We ask that you would bring fruit from this time by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would turn our mind and the attention of our hearts to who you are and what you've done in Christ. Lord, help us to be those who hear your word and cling to your word. Help us to consider how we can encourage one another and build one another up together by your grace that we would hold fast to this confession. And Lord, we ask for rest. Turn our eyes, turn our hearts to the finished work of Christ that we would rest in him. In Jesus' name, amen.